Well, good evening, everyone. Thanks for leading us in in song again. That's a great song. The Lord uh, does often work by difficult providences to to bring us to trust Him more and love Him in greater ways. And uh, yeah, if you were if you were here for the the Q and A, we you know Jody and I have kind of experienced some of those difficulties and those trials, but. The Lord always turns it for good and makes us more like Christ and l- makes us to love Him more through those difficult things. And so everything really for the Christian is a, a blessing and a, a wonderful thing because God promises to work all things for good to make us more like Christ. Now hopefully as we look at the Word of God this this evening and as we finish this weekend, the, the, the truths that, that I've taught through the book of Ephesians that those as well will cause us to be more like Christ, to live more worthy of our salvation. Hopefully, at least, there's a a greater understanding of what Ephesians 2, 1-10 is talking about. And uh, and the Apostle Paul, he's not done yet. We're going to look at verses 8-10 to this evening. I called this the definitive explanation. We saw... um, I forget my outline, the dreadful, our dreadful condition. We saw God's dynamic action making us alive with Christ. And now we have the definitive explanation. And in, in good communication, there's, wherever you find good communication, you're going to find restatement. Good communication makes sure that the hearer understands what was said. And often this is done by saying the exact same thing in just a slightly different way. Sometimes we need to hear the same thing again in a new way. And of course, Paul, the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, was a master communicator. And the Holy Spirit made sure that as he wrote the Scriptures through the Apostles and the Prophets in the New Testament, the Holy Holy Spirit made sure that, that he carried each individual writer along so that, so that as Paul wrote, the Holy Spirit made sure that everything that Paul wrote is exactly what he wanted. And that's what it means when we talk about Scripture as being God-breathed. The ultimate result is the Word of God and not the Word of man, even though it was written through the various people with their various giftings and, and vocabularies and all of that. And so even the Holy Spirit is making sure that we pick up exactly what he wanted us to, as Paul really restates what he had already said in verses 8 to 10. And so let's go ahead and read our text for this evening. I'm going to read again the whole context, starting at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches 
of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now we've been studying verses 1-7 to seven, uh, already this weekend. And uh, in the original Greek, as I told you earlier this weekend, verses 1-7 to seven was one long sentence. Paul has a, a number of long sentences in the book of Ephesians. And in the original, verses 1-7 to seven are one long sentence. And in English, it's, it's just too long of a sentence, and so the translators break it up a little bit for us. And, and as we've seen, really, all weekend, there's a lot packed into this one sentence. And, and, and really, believe it or not, there's, there's more that we could have dug into in those verses. We could have went into more detail on a, a number of things. But as we kind of bring this thing to a conclusion, God doesn't want us to miss the main point. God wants us to pick up what he was laying down and to ensure that we really get what he was saying, he explains everything again in verses 8 to 10. Verses 8 to 10 are are really some of our favorite Bible verses. Maybe these are some of your early memory verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And and those verses, verses 8 to 10, are really so clear in and of themselves, that we can so easily forget that they're actually explaining everything that we've saw or seen in verses 1 to 7. Uh, remember, I, I did this already to you, uh, and uh, I'll do it again. I, I love grammar, and uh, if we want to understand the Bible, we need to understand what it says and the grammar of what it says. Uh, you don't have to understand grammar per se, but, but we at least to understand a sentence, we need to know what it's saying. And, and so remember, there's in a, in a basic sentence, there's usually three parts. There's the subject, the verb, and the object. The subject is the person who's doing the action. The verb is the action itself that's happening, and the object is the thing that the action is done to. Okay, so a subject does the action of the verb to the object. And in the sentence we've been studying really all weekend here, God is the subject. God is the one who is acting. God is the one who does the verb. And, and what did God do? According to verses uh, 1 to 7 in verse 5, what did God do? He is the one who made alive. And the object of the sentence is also in verse, verse 5. Who did God make alive? He made us alive. That is the Ephesian believers. And, and so verses 1 to 3, remember, they described the Ephesians before their salvation. And by, by putting the object of the sentence up front, so he talks about you, the Ephesians, before he says what happened to them or before he says who is doing that to them, there's really this emphasis in this verse on the Ephesians and on their state before their salvation. They were dead. They walked according to the course of this world. They walked according to the, the prince of the power of the air and they walked according to the lusts of their flesh. And this spiritually dead state we saw describes every person as they come into this world. And God is described in verse 4 as being rich in mercy and great in love. 
And who God is, his, his character caused him to act on behalf of those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. And what he does in that action is he made us alive. He resurrected us from spiritual death and made us alive with Christ. And so in verse 5, Paul exclaims, By grace you have been saved. When God takes one who is dead and makes them alive, he is saving that person by his grace. And so it's by grace that God saves. By grace, God makes us alive with Christ. And again, Paul doesn't want anyone to miss the implications of this. And so he further explains what he means in verses 8 to 10. And so what we have in our text then for this this evening is what I'm going to call three clarifications of God's saving work. Three clarifications of God's saving work. And I'll I'll give you the outline ahead of time here. The, The first one, the first clarification of God's saving work is the explanation of God's work. That's in verses, in just verse 8, in the first part of verse 8. Then we're going to see, secondly, the refutation of human works. In the last part of verse 8 and verse 9, the refutation of human works. And then finally, we're going to see the relation of God's work and man's work in verse 10. The relation of God's work and man's work. And so there's three clarifications that that Paul wants to bring to us so that we can really understand what he said in verses 1 to 7. And so what we should do or what should happen here as we work through this text is this should really solidify everything that we've already seen this weekend. For the believer, again, this should make you rejoice in God's salvation. It, It should remind you that you could never save yourself. And this should encourage you to see what what an amazing work God has done in your life. I hope this encourages you as you think about how God has saved you and the amazing work that He has done. You are His workmanship. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're here this evening and you're an unbeliever, this is going to show you what you need and, and again, what you are unable to do on your own. You cannot save yourself. You are entirely dependent on God. And there's nothing that you can do except to cry out to God to have mercy on your soul. And so let's go and dig into these three clarifications. The first one again, the explanation of God's work. Look at verse 8 again. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is the explanation of God's work. That by grace you have been saved through faith. And that little word there, for shows us that Paul is explaining what he just said in verses 1-7. to What should we conclude when we see God taking a spiritually dead person and making them alive, uniting them with Christ? What should we conclude? What should we make out of that? Well, we should conclude that it is grace by which they are saved. Grace is the ultimate cause of salvation. And the reason God makes somebody alive with Christ is because God decides to be gracious to them. Nothing in the person moves God. They are still dead in their sins. That's what grace means. Grace means unmerited or undeserved favor, undeserved blessing. And the favor in this context is we think, what is this favor that that God is pouring out on this person that doesn't deserve it? Well, it is salvation. And so the grace or the favor that God is bestowing on these people is that He makes them alive. He saves them 
by his grace. And so again, the ultimate cause of salvation is God's grace. Next in verse 8, it says that this is through faith. That God saves through faith. Faith is the intermediate cause of salvation. Uh, Again, grace is the ultimate cause. If you say, why is one person saved and another person not? It is because of God's grace. But God saves us through faith. And and that means that God uses faith to bring somebody from this state of unsaved to the state of saved. In other words, it's God's grace that actually grants faith. It's by God's grace that somebody has faith. And as I said this morning, I I believe the way this works is that the first response of those who are made alive with Christ is that they believe. As soon as God makes somebody alive with Christ through the gospel, as the preaching of the gospel is going forth, or as somebody is even just reading the gospel in the Bible, and God saves that person, the first response is that that person believes the gospel and trusts in Jesus Christ. And so God opens blind eyes, and then we see and believe. God grants a new heart, and then we come to Him. And actually, I just want to show you this just in one place. Turn in your Bible to Acts 16, and we're going to look at Acts 16 and verse 14. In Acts 16 and verse 13, uh, we've got Paul and, and he goes uh, and uh, to this place where he thinks there's going to be a place of pl- prayer and he, he sits down and he begins speaking to the women who had assembled. And in verse 14, it says, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And so she is listening there and notice that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And so here's an illustration of God's saving grace. God opened her heart and she responded. And how did she respond? Well, seeing that she was baptized in verse 15, she must have repented and believed the gospel. Now that could bring up another question, maybe as we think about our text then, as we think about God opens the eyes and causes people to respond. We might wonder there if we go back to Ephesians, if if grace is the ultimate cause of salvation and, and, and regeneration brings about faith so that when somebody is born again, they believe, why does Paul not just say, for by grace you have been saved through regeneration? And, right? Why, why doesn't he just say, by grace you've been saved through re- regeneration? Or by grace you've been saved by being made alive with Christ? And, and I think the answer is, and again, I hinted at this earlier this morning, is that we can't necessarily feel regeneration. We, we don't necessarily know when we've been born again. There's not a feeling that we can point to or a thing that necessarily happens. We look the same on the outside, but faith is something that we can examine. We can, we can look and see, do I have faith? We, we might not be able to answer, do I have regeneration? But we can look at the results of regeneration and we can test those things. And, and so faith is really the best way to tell if someone is saved. And so again, how can you tell if you're born again? Ask yourself, am I tr- what am I trusting in to go to heaven? In fact, when I do membership interviews with people, I I like to ask them this question. Uh, I like to ask them, if you died today, 
and Jesus said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you answer? And by getting people to ask that question, why should I let you into heaven? They're, they're really revealing what they're trusting in to get to heaven. Now, of course, the right answer is, I don't deserve to go to heaven. I really deserve to go to hell. I, I, there, there's really no reason that God should let me into heaven except that I've trusted in Him and believed in His gospel. And so I, I, I do believe that I'm going to heaven, but it's not because of anything that I have done, but it's because of something that He has done on my behalf. And so are you trusting the living Savior, Jesus Christ? Or are you trusting in something that you did? Or are you trusting in something that you're doing? Or in something that you're not doing? Because the salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ, not in anything that you can do or anything that you have done or haven't done. And even as we talked about maybe briefly in the Q&A, we, we really even need to be careful of this because true faith focuses on its object, not on itself. And sometimes people end up trusting in their faith rather than in just Christ Himself. And so Charles Spurgeon once said, never make a Christ out of your faith. Really, our, our trust in, in, in true saving faith, we don't even really look to ourselves, but we just look outside of ourselves to Christ and what He has accomplished. And so true faith looks away from itself and trusts entirely in Christ. And we can test ourselves if we have that kind of faith. Faith understands who Christ is and what He has done. Faith believes that, that this understanding about who Christ is and what He has done is true. And then faith runs to Him, comes to Him, and clings to Him and grabs hold of Him for salvation. And so faith trusts entirely on Christ as a living person. And the Ephesians, they had this faith. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 13. Paul says there, in Him that is in Christ, in the context, in Christ, you also after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so we see there that the uh, Ephesians, they listened to the message of truth, they listened to the gospel of their salvation, and they believed, and they were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so they believed the gospel. And so the first clarification of God's saving work was the explanation of God's work. By grace, you have been saved. And, and I, I can't help but just point out here, note again the, the past tense of this thing, you have been saved. This is a, a completed action. Saved is a, a completed action. It's in the what they call the perfect tense in Greek. It means that it, it, something had happened in the past and the results of that something continued. And so in the past... They had been saved, and, and the results of that salvation are continuing right up until the point that Paul wrote this letter. And so they have been saved, and we could even say, by grace you are saved, to bring out the present results of that. And so by grace you have been saved, and you continue to be saved. And so this is a completed action. This is something that is finished. The Ephesians had been saved, and they were still saved. And this shows that we can know indeed that we are saved. 
The, Paul even says to these other people, you have been saved because he has seen the fruit of that. He has seen the, that they are trusting in Christ. And so he can say, yes, because you're trusting in Christ, because your life has been changed, because we see these fruits of regeneration in your life, we can know that you have indeed been saved and you can rest in that salvation. And so the first explanation, the first clarification is the explanation of God's work. God has saved these people by grace through faith. Secondly, then, we see the second clarification is the refutation of human works. And that's in verse 8 and the rest of verse 9. The rest of verse 8 and verse 9. And that, he says, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. In case we somehow missed it here, then Paul now explicitly says that salvation is not by human merit. Salvation is a gift of God. It is not a work of man. And the reason God designed it that way is so that no one may boast. There, there's no room for boasting in this salvation by grace. The only one who can boast is God who saves. We could put it positively, God designed salvation this way so that He would get all the glory. And these verses should make us worship God for His saving grace. Now when the text there says, and that, not of yourselves, we we need to think, what does that refer to? So, by grace you've been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Uh, is faith it, it, what so what does that refer to does that refer to faith is faith not of yourselves it is the gift of god or is it grace that's not of yourselves it is the gift of god or is it that have been saved is not of yourselves it is the gift of god and on this question good and godly men disagree now i, I don't want to go too deep into greek grammar but i, I just want to say that in Greek, there's a, there's a matching that's supposed to happen when there's a word like that. And so the word that doesn't match either grace or faith. Usually in Greek, there's a way to match those up so that we could know exactly what it's pointing to. It doesn't match grace. It doesn't match faith. It doesn't match have been saved. And so the, the, the word that doesn't match. Or in the ESV, if you have the English Standard Bible, it says this in the ESV. The, the word that or the word this doesn't match anything that comes before. There's no single word that matches. And often when we see this, what it means is that the word that there or the word this in the ESV refers to the whole sentence that comes before. And I think that's the best view here. And so when we say, what is that or this that is not of yourselves? It's salvation by grace through faith. Salvation by grace through faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And so salvation by grace through faith, again, is not of yourselves. The, the, the gift of God is that by grace you have been saved through faith. The whole thing from start to finish is not of ourselves. The whole thing from start to finish is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. It is something that God does. Salvation originates with God and it ends with God. And uh, of course, even though God is the one who originates it. God is the one who, who does it. We do respond. We do believe. We do trust. We, God doesn't do that for us. But our willing response to the gospel happens 
because of what a God has done in our lives. And so even our faith then is a gift of God. And what all this means is that God gets all the glory. God gets all the glory for salvation because man has, has the, the, the works of man have been refuted. They, they're not involved in this thing at all. There is nothing in us that makes us different than anybody else who's not saved. God chose me. He made me alive. He saved me. I didn't deserve it. I, I, I have no boast. I can't say I chose God and that other guy didn't. I, I chose God because He removed my blind eyes and, and gave me a new eyes to see. I chose God because He gave me a new heart to love Him. I chose God because He chose me and called me to Himself and opened up my eyes and, and, and brought me to salvation. And so if you are here and you are saved, give God glory for what He's done in your life. And so there's a, a refutation of human works in this whole thing. That's the second clarification. Thirdly, the, the third clarification of God's saving work is in verse 10. Look at it there. It says, uh, we're going to call this the relation of God's work and man's work. Again, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And again, we're going to call this the relation of God's work and man's work. Uh, the word for there again uh, indicates that Paul is explaining what came before. Here he's explaining verses 8 and 9. And so for we are his workmanship. He's, he's really explaining even the whole thing that came before here right from verse 1. For gives the reason that salvation is by grace through faith and not of ourselves but a gift of God. And so why are these things so? Why, why is salvation by grace through faith, not of ourselves? Why is it a gift of God? Why are these things so? And the reason is that when it comes to salvation, God is the one who works. God is the worker. We are His workmanship. God is the one who is doing the work. And our works then are really the result of what God does, and it's not the other way around. Our works are, are the result of what God has done for us, our works are not the reason that God does something in our life. We are His workmanship. God initiates salvation and we become, in salvation, we become His creative work. And the good news about this is that, that we are then God's work and God doesn't do any bad work. And God does nothing poorly. Everything that God does, He does well. And we are His workmanship that word workmanship was uh, used to describe a master craftsman and god then is the master craftsman when he saved you and when he saved you you became his special handiwork and this workmanship isn't talking about god's work in creating us in our mother's womb although we could think about god's workmanship that way the the workmanship that paul is talking about here is the work that god did in our lives when he made us alive with christ this is talking about god's work in the new creation when He saves us by grace. We are made brand new in salvation. Our sins are forgiven. Our sins are put away. Our sins are remembered no more. We are cleansed. And we are changed. We are transformed. We are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 again, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. 
who we are at the core of our beings has changed. Now, even though we're changed in, in this life, again, we, until our full salvation is realized, when we see Christ, we still have the remnants of our old nature. We still sin and we still are tempted. In this life, we still must fight against sin and grow more and more to become who we are when God saves us. When God saves us, we're made new and now we need to grow into who we are. But we're new and we're different and there's been a change of heart and a change of affections. And so what we do as new creatures in Christ is we must shed the remnants of our old life and we progressively grow into the image of Christ. The good news is that if we are born again, that new life in us, it will grow. If you have been made a new tree, you will bear good fruit. We could go to the parable of the sower and we see that that everyone who's a true Christian where the Word of God bears its fruit bears 30, 60, 100 fold. And the reason that we bear 30, 60, 100 fold is because we are His workmanship. And notice too that the text says we are not only His workmanship, but we are created in Christ. This word here, created, is another word for creation. And it really should remind us of the original creation. Remember when God says in Genesis 1.31, after creation, He says that it was very good. And in the same way, the new creation that God does when He makes us alive with Christ is very good. Paul uses the same word, creation, a little bit later in Ephesians chapter 4. And verse 24, you could look at it there. He says to the Ephesians, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The the original creation was very good and so is the new creation. We're made new creations so that we can dwell with God forever in the new heaven and the new earth when God makes all things new. And so if you're saved, you've been created in righteousness and holiness. And now God wants you to live according to who you are in this new creation. Each believer is a unique creation of God designed specifically by God to honor and glorify Him. And so if you are saved here today, you are His workmanship. You are created in connection with Jesus Christ. And one of the things that this means for us if we are a new creation is that you can overcome sin. You are no longer a slave of sin. You are no longer who you once were. You can put on the new self because you are a new self. You know, sometimes we think that, that we're stuck. That, that the, the way we are is, is the way that we have always been. But that's not true for a believer. If you are a new creation in Christ, you don't have to be who you once were. You can change because God's power, remember the surpassing greatness of His power made you alive with Christ and that same power is at work in your life now as the Holy Spirit lives in you to to work through you and you just become who you are in that new creation. And so now that we're saved, the there's a whole new trajectory in our life. We're going in a whole different direction. Once we lived in trespasses and sins because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, everything is different. Now we are new and therefore we act new. Remember this morning we we looked at 
the God as the actor. Remember, God was the the uh, author of salvation, and He saved us because of His mercy and His love. And remember, God's mercy and His love, who God is, caused Him to act on our behalf. And so God acted according to His nature. Who God is caused Him to do what He did. And, and the same is really true for us now. Who we are as new creations in Christ is what moves us to act differently in this world. And so out of who we are, now good works flow. Because we've been made new, now good works come. Good works could never come before salvation. First the tree must be made good, and then it bears good fruit. And so first we must be made good in regeneration, and then and only then do we now do good in the world. And so look at the text again. We were created for good works. God's purpose is that we might do good works that glorify Him. He created us for good works. And even those good works, even the good works that we do after we are saved, those God has prepared by grace that we would walk in them. It says there that he prepared them. Let, let me just, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now we, we might wonder when did God prepare these good works beforehand? And the answer is that God would have prepared these good works when he really prepared everything that happens in the world before the foundation of the world. As part of God's decree, he planned how we would live the rest of our Christian life. And now, and now we're to walk in these good works that God has prepared for us. Now the question then comes, well, what good works are we to do as believers? What are these good works that God has prepared? What are we supposed to walk in as believers? Good works there is just a very general word and it really includes everything that we do in our life. Good works is, is just general. And, and really everything that we do should be done as an act of worship. Everything, everything for the believer becomes worship. Everything that we do for God and His glory from the most mundane thing to the most spiritual thing that we do, all of our life is now an act of worship to Jesus Christ. And so 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, Whether then... You eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so every act of our life is, be, is to be done to glorify and honor God, even something as simple as eating and drinking. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. And so the rest of our lives should be lived for the Lord Jesus. We do all that we do in His name that, that He might be shown to the world around, that He might be honored and glorified through our lives. Now if we want to get more specific uh, of what good works Paul has in mind specifically, I think if we could ask Paul, Paul, what good works did you have in mind when you wrote that in, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10? What good works were you thinking of? I think Paul would say to us, well, read the rest of the letter that I wrote and I, I explained it a little bit later on. In chapters 4-6, to six, Paul says five times, as, as we get to chapter 4, Paul says, remember I showed you this early on, uh, on Saturday night, 
In chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you are called. So therefore, because of all that I said before about the great salvation that you have in Christ, therefore, I want you to walk worthy of that calling, or I want you to walk worthy of that salvation. And then five times from here on, we have the word, at least in the Greek, we have the word, therefore, walk. And so five times, Paul says, therefore, walk, therefore, walk. Now, the New American Standard doesn't always translate it, therefore, but I want to show you these things. And and really, these things really show us how we are to live worthy of our salvation. And so if we want to live in light of all that we've learned this weekend, how are we to walk? Well, first of all, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so first of all, when Paul says, I want you to walk worthy of your salvation, I want you to walk in good works, he has in mind that we would be patient with one another, that we would tolerate one another, that we would be humble and gentle. And, and really overarching this whole thing is this idea of walking in unity, that we would be united with one another. And note that this unity is not just kind of getting together and, and, and all being one, but it's based on the fact that there is one body, verse 4, one spirit, Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so the unity that that Paul wants us to walk in as brothers and sisters in Christ is a unity that's based on the truth of who God is and what He's done for us in our salvation. And so we're to walk in unity. Next, in chapter 4 and verse 17, Paul says, so this I say, and again, that's therefore, and affirm together, this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. And then he goes on to say how we should walk in Christ likeness. And so uh, Paul says, this is how you walk in good works. Don't live like the Gentiles live. Don't live like the sinful world around you, but instead walk according to Jesus Christ. And, and he talks about no longer stealing and, and let no unwholesome word proceed of your, out of your mouth and don't grieve the Holy Spirit and remove all bitterness and wrath and clamor and slander and be kind to one another and tenderhearted, forgiving each other as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And so we're to walk differently from the world around us as part of our good works. Next, therefore, is in chapter 5 and verse 1 where he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. And so the good works that we're called to walk in is love. Loving one another just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. In that same way, we are to be imitators of God and imitators of Christ and love one another, give up our lives for one another as a a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Uh, the, the love that he talks about there then is, he, uh, he says, avoid all these kind of false loves of, of immorality and impurity, but love one another with a pure love like God in Christ. The next, therefore, walk is in chapter 5 and verse 8, uh, really starting in verse 7. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children 
of light. And so Paul wants us to walk as children of light. And what does that mean? It means that we expose the deeds of darkness, that we admonish one another and rebuke one another and encourage one another to live according to godliness in this world, but to reject all kinds of wickedness and darkness and uh and really this is a Ephesians 5 7 to 14 is really a a church discipline text where we're to to even admonish and rebuke one another because that's what it means to walk as children of light light exposes darkness and so darkness should be exposed from our midst and removed from our midst and then the final one is in chapter 5 and verse 15 where Paul says therefore Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And so how are we to walk? We're to walk as wise men. We're to redeem the time because we don't have much time until the Lord returns. And so don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he says we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the good works that we're called to walk in then is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, we're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I'm in verse 19 of chapter 5. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And so this is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit, that we're encouraging one another, that the Word of God is is on our lips and in our songs and in everything we do, we're doing it for the Lord. We're giving thanks to Him for all that happens And also, verse 21, we are subjecting ourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. And then Paul says what what this submission looks like. And he starts speaking about life in the household, that wives are to be subject to their husbands, and husbands are to love their wives and give up their life for their wives. Then he he moves on to children, chapter 6, verse 1. What does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It means to obey your parents and, and submit to your parents and parents don't provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord and then even being filled with the Holy Spirit affects our workplaces so that in uh, chapter 5 slaves be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh sorry that's chapter 6 and verse 5 and then and then masters are to to honor the, their their workers and in their employees and so uh, the the good works that Paul is calling us to really affect all of our life and so again in this world we're to live out our salvation to the glory of God in all that we do that He might be worshipped and that He might be glorified and so we've seen in our text then three clarifications. of God's salvation, we saw that uh, the explanation of God's work in verse 8, we saw the refutation of human works, and then we saw the relationship of God's work to our work. God works first in our life, and then we work as a result of that. And we work in everything that we do to glorify the Lord and in every sphere of life. I hope this weekend's been helpful as we've been studying these things, and I, I hope that that you will put some of these things into practice, that your worship has increased this weekend as you think about God's amazing saving grace in your life. And uh, I hope that, that you live it out for the glory of God uh, the rest of your days. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have 
shown us what we were like before salvation. We were dead. We were enslaved. We were on our way to hell. Thank you that you have turned us around, that you made us alive, that you raised us with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly places. You have uh, saved us by grace. You have granted us faith that we might trust in your son. And now you call us to live the rest of our days as your workmanship, as a new creation in Christ. You've called us to live the rest of our days for your honor, for your glory. We pray that you would get the glory that you are worthy of from our lives, that you would be honored, and that the salvation that you have done in our hearts would be manifested, that you would be shown to be the great and awesome God that you are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.